0: Welcome to Chatter. I'm Anna Hickey. This week, writer and journalist Christopher Miller on his book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine.
1: Yanukovych, the president at the time, ordered his riot police to storm the Independence Square, where these peaceful protesters had been sitting. And and they came there and, and, and bludgeoned them. And there was, quite literally, blood running down the stairs of Kiev's Independence Square. There were no signs initially that it would become a revolution that would alter Europe and, and, and really set in motion all of the events that have played out since, including Russia's full-scale invasion in 2022 and the war that we're witnessing here in Ukraine right now. You know, I remember my phone ringing constantly. Um, it was not only family and friends back home in the U.S. checking in on me, but my Ukrainian friends asking me, What do you know? Where should we go? And at that moment, I didn't have a lot of answers.
0: Christopher Miller, welcome to Chatter.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: So in your book, you write about your experience living and working in Ukraine when you were first sent there by the Peace Corps. Obviously, in the almost 15 years since, Ukraine has seen some significant changes. But thinking back to when you first got there, what was your first experience? What did you expect when you first arrived in the Donbass?
1: Yeah, actually, it was April 1st, 2010, when I arrived in Ukraine, first in Kiev. And then, after a few months of, of Peace Corps language training and, and, and cultural lessons, I, I got sent out to eastern Ukraine, to a city called Bakhmut that a lot of people now know about because of the really brutal. Ten-month battle of the city that that saw it unfortunately destroyed and, and occupied by Russian forces last year. But before it was uh, one, one of the main battlegrounds in this war, it was a very peaceful city of more than seventy thousand people. Um, you know, just a, a provincial a provincial city. Um, you know, outside of the the, the country's capital, um, that I would say you know not a whole lot of people were talking about or, or really thinking about, and. You know, to me, it felt like the other side of the world. Um, I had been in, in in journalism for a couple of years after uh, graduating from from university in in Oregon, and decided uh, to go off and have a little adventure for a couple of years. And the Peace Corps is a twenty seven month commitment, so I I ended up in Ukraine, and uh, I didn't choose. Uh, that's the other thing about about the Peace Corps: you don't choose where uh, where you get to go, or at least at that at that point. Uh, volunteers didn't, uh, so I was dispatched to to Ukraine, and I didn't know anything about the place, about the people. I had never traveled to Eastern Europe at that point. It was it was all new, and for me that was exciting. Um, you know, making new friends, getting to know a place, um, you know, moving into a new apartment, learning a new language, and uh, that was that was something that was very difficult for me as well. I learned Russian because the language predominantly spoken in Eastern Ukraine um, was was Russian. Uh, even though, and maybe just a side, a small detour historically, you know, Russian was not the the language of of, of Eastern Ukraine. Ukrainian used to be, but it was the Russians who shipped in uh, Russian workers uh, and and R- Russian citizens during the industrialization period, decades and decades ago. So they they sort of Russified the area. But when I arrived there, people were mostly speaking Russian or a mix of Russian and some Ukrainian called Surzhik. So that was uh, a bit of a curveball, studying Russian, but then having to learn a mix of the two. No, it was was a really interesting uh, place, uh, far off any beaten path. And it came at a really interesting moment for the country as well. The pro-Russian president, Viktor Yanukovych, who just several years earlier had fixed an election and sparked the orange revolution um, had uh, actually been democratically elected and came to power early in 2010. So I arrived just a couple of months after uh, he took office. And I would say, generally speaking, the, the mood in the country was a bit downbeat. Although some people in Eastern Ukraine, where his um, base was, uh, were, were, were very pleased with the fact that he had come uh, come to office, so uh, it was. It was a, a, an interesting moment when I think the direction of the country was was still very uncertain. It looked as though it was sort of being pulled closer into or back toward Russia's sphere of influence. It wasn't the very um, European minded, democratically oriented, Western uh, European oriented country that we know today. Um, and, uh, at that point, you know, war was still far off and, and, nobody was talking about the, the possibility of a Russian invasion, um, you know, in some places, some corners of Eastern Ukraine, people were still talking very much about Ukraine and Russia being sort of brother nations. There was a lot of nostalgia for Russia and the former Soviet Union among older groups, um, pensioners in Eastern Ukraine and, uh, I would say you know one of the one of the things that I found really interesting was that while it was sort of thought of as this kind of backwater um, and far from Europe, there were a lot of young Ukrainians who were born in independent Ukraine and coming of age as as young adults, and those were a lot of the people who I spent my time with and and that gave me I guess a sort of hope for Ukraine's future and for progress across the country, not only um, in Kiev, um, but, but also in provincial cities like um, Artyomovsk, which is what um, Bakhmut was called at the time, before it returned to its historical name Bakhmut a few years later. Um, so yeah, I, I, I arrived then in 2010 and, and spent a couple of years there before relocating to uh, the capital, Kiev, in 2012, and, and getting back into journalism as a foreign correspondent Uh, here in the capital. So the first part of the book that I wrote has a lot to do with those pre-revolution years between 2010 and 2013. So you learn a lot about Ukrainians, the culture, that political moment, how we got to the Euromaidan uprising that became the revolution of dignity.
0: And thinking about like the interesting moment that, that Ukraine was going through in that time period, there's one story in that first part of the book that really stuck out to me. And it was uh, Ilya, the father of a student you taught, who was like brought out his Donetsk uh, Krivio-Rog Soviet Republic flag. And then uh, some spoilers for later in the book, but you run across him later. And I just found that particular story incredibly interesting because it was, as you were saying, before the revolution, before there was any talk. So what was it like thinking about when he showed you his, I believe, AK-47 and his flag? Did you, what was it like to be in that moment? Did you have any expectations that that was something you're going to experience while you were there?
1: No, it it, it really startled me at first. I mean, it's Eastern Ukraine might seem and feel and and be truthfully a bit of a a wild place out there in the uh, in the step, but to see a uh, Kalashnikov rifle pulled out of the trunk of a car still um, you know startles startles you uh, when, when it happens so i was I was taken a bit aback by that, but you know, like I said, there were some people who had these feelings of nostalgia and and of, of you know the good old days in the Soviet Union and uh, really wanted Moscow to sort of reign over. Um, at least this part of Ukraine, they were, I would say, you know, fewer and farther between than those who enjoyed their lives in an independent Ukraine. Even if uh, you know most people were skeptical of Kiev and its politics and felt sort of forgotten, if not abandoned by by the capital and, and politicians in, in, in Kiev, they still were not um, pro-Russian in the sense that they wanted Moscow to rule them, right? And and I would say a lot of people were not were certainly not pro-Putin. But that said, there were these small contingents, little pockets of 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 folks um, who did feel those things. And uh, the father of of one of my students, um, uh, I call him Ilya. I didn't change many identities in the book, but I did for 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 this family. Um, uh, but uh, Ilya, uh, the father, in you know, he invited me out for a barbecue with their family as a sort of thank you for teaching his, his, his kid in one of the schools that I was working at as a Peace Corps volunteer. And after several shots of his uh, homemade moonshine, or what we call Samagon, uh, he took me over to his car and sort of gave me this um, you know lecture about how there used to be this independent republic in Eastern Ukraine, and again, this is a bit of like revisionist history on his part too, right? But it was called the Krivirog uh, the Krivi rog, um, you know, uh, republic, and it was sort of this breakaway statelet that had designed its own flag in the colors of black and blue and red. And he was telling me that uh, he was part of this group that was um, a, a bunch of men, about thirty or forty of them, in Donetsk region, so Eastern Ukraine, where, where I, around where I was living. Who were were activists in the sense that they were sort of promoting the idea of this um, the return of this breakaway statelet. And he said, you know, we even we've even got our own flag, and we're prepared to you know rise up and and even fight for this and for our independence if necessary. And so you know, he pops open the trunk of his old uh, Soviet era Lada sedan and he pulls out this flag and, you know, sort of explains it and the colors and their regional significance. And then after that, pulls out this, uh, you know, kind of dinged up old Kalashnikov rifle and suggests that we go and and, and do some target shooting with it. Um, an idea that I quickly, uh, no pun intended, shot down and, and said, you know, I think we should move back to the barbecue. Uh, but it was an interesting moment. And Honestly, I, I saw him several times after that because I worked at the school where his where his child was a student. But I didn't think that after I finished the Peace Corps and, and became a journalist and moved to Kiev that I would ever return to eastern Ukraine to report on a war, let alone bump into him, which is what happened some years later when I returned to the city of Bakhmut and was pulling in uh, to a, a, a checkpoint manned by some, some Russian and, and pro-Russian fighters and one of them happened to be him. And there's this um, sort of uh, somewhat tense moment where I've got guns drawn on me um, that 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 moves to a bit more of a humorous situation when he realizes that I'm inside of the car and invites me to uh, meet some of the men that he had described to me uh, years earlier.
0: And I'm imagining that when you first saw the flag and that first encounter, you never, ever thought that so many years later you would be coming across him in what would become an active war zone. <laughs> but thinking back at that time period where it is this inflection moment for Ukraine, you going to talk about ending up as a journalist in Ukraine. The way the book reads, it's almost on accident. As I'm reading these stories, it's that the path that you had you just ended up being in the right moment in a lot of places to be able to take advantage of it. And so how did you end up becoming an investigative reporter? And then can you talk about the first time you received a bribe deal? Um, Cause I also found that story just so fascinating.
1: Sure. Um, I didn't receive a bribe deal. I was You're offered. offered. It. <laughs> I was offered one. Um, sure. You know, I, I, I did plan on, moving back into journalism after uh, joining the Peace Corps and doing my 27 months as a Peace Corps volunteer. And as I mentioned, I had been a reporter uh, in Portland, Oregon prior to joining the Peace Corps. So my my plan in a nutshell was um, because I had graduated uh, in 2008 and the financial crisis had hit and 2009 was not a great year either. And I needed to start paying student loans. And my journalism job at that time, to no surprise, did not pay very well. So I took a a two-month kind of break to go have an adventure and I thought I would come back to Portland and get a job at the state paper and, you know, start my life again. And, um, you know, I, I did get back into journalism, but instead of going back, uh, to the U.S., I decided to stay in Ukraine because I, I just had such a great time in the Peace Corps and I really got this, um, uh, itch to travel, to live abroad, to, um, I guess the, the, the sort of life of, a, of an expat and the unpredictability um, and the challenges that come with that sort of excited me still. And so after, after living in, in Eastern Ukraine, I, I moved to, to Kiev. I started uh, at this newspaper here that's, it's still around, but it's in a very different form currently. Um, but it, it's called the Kiev post. And it was sort of an expat English language newspaper. One of um the sort of newspapers that popped up in the post-Soviet space after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Like, uh, Russia had the Moscow Times. Prague used to have the Prague Post. There was one in Budapest. There was one um, in other, you know, other uh, Eastern European countries. In in Ukraine, it was the Kiev Post. It had been around for many years. Um, There was an expat editor, a couple other expat reporters, um, and and myself included, and then several Ukrainian journalists. And so I... I, uh, You know, there I really cut my teeth in doing uh, investigative reporting, uh, reporting on corruption here in Ukraine um, at the time, of course, uh, which there was there was plenty to be reported on. Um, I was doing some foreign correspondence. Uh, I had some strings for international outlets who wanted stories about, um, you know, the geopolitics of Eastern Europe uh, or, you know. Uh, stories about where Kiev fit in into the the, the conversation about Russia and the U.S. Uh, Anytime there was a a big event that happened here, I'd get called on to to sort of report or file a dispatch from here. And I did that for most of 2013. And uh, I think it was the summer of of 2013 when I was working on this, uh, I guess what was my first big scoop. And what had happened was uh, I, I received a tip that the... Russians were trying to smear the American Westinghouse Nuclear Fuel Company that was providing fuel rods to Ukraine to power its nuclear reactors. The Russians were trying to say that Westinghouse's American nuclear fuel rods were causing damage to uh, Ukraine's um, nuclear reactors, and uh, they were leaking. And in reality, what I had found out was that it was the Russian nuclear fuel rods um, that were being used alongside the American fuel rods. And because of their flexibility, for some reason, they were crashing up against the American ones and causing them to leak in some cases. So um, the story was a bit like what, what um, some uh, pro-Russian and russian sources were, were claiming except it was kind of flipped on its head right and so the story that i wrote caused a, a big stink and and it got a lot of domestic coverage here uh russian media uh reported a lot about it i think some western publications picked it up uh reuters and, and some of the wires for example and it got, it got uh, a lot of attention. And um, some days later, I was working on a follow-up story, and I got a weird phone call from someone claiming to be a person who worked closely with the Yanukovych government at the time. And he just wanted to, to meet and talk about my story and, and just to make sure I, I had all of the information correct. And uh, you know, just, just for, for my knowledge, you know, he wanted to explain some things. So I said, um, you know, yeah, sure, we can go meet for coffee. And, and just to be safe, I took an editor... Uh, with me, and we showed up at this uh, coffee shop that was sort of out of the way, tucked um, in this corner behind the opera house, and it was a bit like like a D level spy flick, where like yeah, I walked in and he was. Um, sitting in the very back uh corner booth in this coffee shop and the lights were dimmed back there and I don't I mean I don't know if he did that but it was just kind of a dark cafe and he's in this dark suit and he's just kind of stirring his tea slowly and we sit down and he has a talk with us and says you know I you you you're not getting this quite right um and I'd like to make you an offer if I may and you know that sort of piqued my interest and he says uh you know there's there's a very important campaign going on. It's this, you know, black PR campaign. They call it, um, you know, PR. And um, he said, if you're if you're up for it, uh, you know, you're welcome to be a part of it, and it can be worth your while. It pays well, you know. And he extends um, uh, a fifty thousand dollar bribe to us, and uh, my editor and I, um, you know, are pretty shocked by this. It's a very brazen move, and we look at each other. And um, my editor, he was, I'm uh, roughly my age, and we were both pretty young in our 20s at the time, and and uh, he couldn't hold back his excitement and sort of had this grin on his face. Me, I was a bit more startled and, and started looking over my shoulders to see if anybody was coming up behind us uh, or, or or watching us. And um, of course, we said, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Um, however, now that we know that there is this. Uh, smear campaign um, happening, and you've confirmed it for us. Um, and this had been what a lot of my reporting was about. You know, I'd love to hear more. Who's involved? Um, you know, what's what's the what's the end game here? Uh, you know, who are you, other than this person? Um, I think he told me his name was uh, Vladimir, which is an extremely common name, right? It's like the the John of um, of Eastern Europe. And uh, he said, I, "I don't know what you're talking about." And he just pulled out his wallet and put some money on the table to pay for his his, uh, coffee or tea and, uh, and got up and left. And, uh, I never, I never heard from him again. I tried calling the number, uh, you know, many, many times later and it was disconnected. And, uh, we went back to the office and and had a pretty good laugh and, and talked with another editor who thought, you know, wow, we're early on to something. Um, and, and we were. And so I, I reported out that story. I think there were maybe two or three follow follow-ups. and I guess that was my first, uh, my first big scoop. Um, as a, as a correspondent over here uh, until, you know, a few months later, the Yeramadan uh, protest began and, and that all spun into, you know, the revolution.
0: Yeah, so thinking about the Yeramadan protest that started in like November, 2013, when people first started showing up to protest, did you have any expectation of what it would eventually become? Were there any seeds at the beginning?
1: No, at the beginning... It was, it was a protest of, of mostly young people, university-age students or young professionals in their 20s, you know, holding signs on Independence Square. It was, it was a demonstration. Um, it was peaceful. There were chants and songs. Um, you know, it was not violent uh, yet. And it was not large. I would say you know, anywhere from several hundred people to a few thousand people were, were coming out to the street. You know, every day for for about a week or so, and there was no expectation that it would become anything uh, anything like an uprising or a protest, a mass protest movement, or um, something resembling the Orange Revolution um, a decade earlier. Right? Uh, Not at that point. It wasn't until the uh, the the, the night of um, November thirty first or December first or overnight then. When uh, Yanukovych, the president at the time, ordered his um, interior minister and, and his uh, riot police to storm the Independence Square, where these peaceful protesters um, had been had been sitting and uh, sipping tea and talking amongst themselves, and again, these are mostly um, students, young people, and they came there and and, and bludgeoned them, and there was uh, quite literally blood running down the stairs of of. Kiev's Independence Square, or the Maidan colloquially, and uh, you know that really woke people up, and it was that violence, state-sponsored violence, that brought out tens of thousands of people over the the, the course of the next several days. Um, you know, there were a couple of protests that the Ukrainians, um, you know, believe brought out as many as a million people, and it was it was a lot of people. Um, just entire city blocks and buildings, you know, every corner is packed full of people, and it turned into into uh, uh, an uprising. Absolutely, and then um, you know, a massive uh, tent camp popped up, and it felt and looked a lot like the Orange Revolution a decade earlier. And um, you know, there was there was great unity on the square, and people were coming in, uh, you know, carpooling from Western Ukraine or Southern Ukraine, Northern Ukraine central Ukraine, um, hopping buses, trains, everybody wanted to be a part of it. And, you know, it was, at first it was, um, you know, very exciting and and fascinating as a young reporter to be witnessing, uh, you know, history. Um, things eventually grew more violent, which is something that I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't foresee, and I don't think a lot of people did. And it was much more than the violence that the uh, uh, police um, waged in that, in that first night. Um, you know, eventually it would lead to the killings of several people, and, and then in uh, late February, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of people. But there were no signs initially that it would become a revolution that would... Uh, you know, I think alter Europe that would, um, you know, lead to Russia's uh, covert invasion of Crimea. You know, days days after the revolution um, in in Kiev, um, and 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 really set in motion all of the events that have played out since, including Russia's full scale invasion in twenty twenty two and the war that we're witnessing here in Ukraine right now.
0: And then thinking about the little green men and the covert Russian invasion of Crimea in 2014, when that occurred, when you were living in Ukraine, what was the reaction of the Ukrainians that were around you as there was this kind of first invasion of Russian forces or at the time, alleged Russian forces into a part of Ukraine? Did it really impact people in Kiev, or was that like that so far away from us? It's kind of separate. It's kind of its own entity. You know, I'm not that concerned about it.
1: A little bit of both, to be honest. You know, it was I mean, first in, in, in Kiev, uh, people were in a very celebratory mood. Right. Yanukovych had been uh, ousted by parliament after he fled the country. He was now uh, now in Russia. Uh, protesters from Independence Square, uh, the revolutionaries, had had gone to his uh, walled, massive compound that was the size of Monaco, um, that nobody had seen or been inside of for for years, and they were climbing, uh, you know, sc- scaling the walls and and opening the gate and and flooding the premises and and you know just getting their first glimpse at what this kleptocrat had. Had done what he had stolen, um, you know, billions and billions of dollars worth of of state assets and and, and money, and and so there really was this um, celebratory mood that immediately shifted, you know, uh, att- people's attention to Crimea and and caused a lot of confusion. Um, at first, it wasn't clear what was what was happening. Uh, you know, you used the the word "little green men," which is the 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 term that we use to. Describe the unmarked soldiers that were Russian soldiers that had snuck off their um, Black Sea base down in, in Crimea at the time, or uh, been been uh, secretly um, uh, airlifted in, um, or driven in by boat by uh, by Russia. But you know there wasn't even time really to to grasp what the uh, uh, the ouster of Yanukovych meant when a lot of people turned to Crimea and were trying to to make out what was what was happening. Um, I think we were all a little bit confused. And I, I quickly got on a plane and, and went down there to, to figure it out for myself. And, and uh, I didn't know what I was going to experience when I arrived. And there's this scene that I paint in the book um, where I'm on this plane and I'm, I'm next to a, a veteran TV reporter, uh, an older gentleman, and um, he's telling me, you know I think you need to get ready for war and, and I say to him you know um, is that is that what we're going to find down there and I I get off the plane and at the airport there there are very few passengers um, it's mostly just airport employees uh, you know police officers and then there's there are dozens of Russian soldiers masked and, and in their uniforms but without insignia and they've got assault rifles of course and, and these were the little green men and so as I moved across the city. I saw more and more of them. And it became more clear that there was this sort of uh, covert, insidious invasion happening in real time across the peninsula. And every military base that I would go to, Ukrainian military base, that is, uh, or police station or outside of the uh, government buildings, there would be more of these these Russians. Um, some of them had already taken control of these buildings or were trying to force Ukrainians at military bases to change sides, uh, to surrender, at least to, to, to vacate, to, to be able to take over. And, uh, you know, I, I think I was still young enough, naive enough to not really understand the the seriousness of the situation. And, and in some ways that allowed me to not really be scared and just to to go right up to a lot of these guys and, and interview them and, and to write about it. Um, I think in this sort of... Uh, very innocent, uh, you know, kind of eyewitness manner. Um, And, uh, you know, I think if this happened now, and I, at the age that I am in my in my late 30s, and had gone down there, I think um, I may have taken a a slightly different approach, and maybe even been um, more cautious. Um, but, you know, I was naive enough, I think, to, you know, run onto some military bases to do some reporting on what Russian soldiers were doing to interview Ukrainians as they were besieged at the Belbek Air Base. And, um, you know, all of that is, is, is written in, in detail in the book. And I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certainly very glad that I was able to witness it. Um, but it was a really, a really unpredictable moment, I think, in some ways. Uh, you know we're all very fortunate that it did not transform into um, the violence that we would see months later but but also you know there was um, this takeover that happened by by Russia without a shot really being fired and it did show just how weak Ukraine was in that moment and I think that weakness and also the the lack of a real response to show support for Ukraine on the part of of the West and the United States at that moment really emboldened Russia and I think led to what would what would come uh, in, in in just weeks later in Eastern Ukraine.
0: And so then thinking about what came just weeks later in, uh, apologies for the butchering of the um, language that I'm about to do, but in the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, oblasts.
1: Oh, you got them. No, that's good.
0: Phew. Yeah. Um, But thinking about kind of how the, what would then just become a near war in eastern Ukraine, what was it like to transition from reporting at a place you mentioned in Crimea, it was a takeover nearly without a shot, to then just full out armed conflict? And did your experience in Crimea prepare you for what you would end up seeing in eastern Ukraine? Or did it still come as a surprise of the level of violence that would occur?
1: Well, it prepared me in a way, because when I arrived back out in eastern Ukraine, there were armed gunmen um, setting up checkpoints, uh, checking IDs of of people passing through them, certainly treating journalists with great skepticism. So there was this, this really tense atmosphere that felt initially much like Crimea. They were using the same terminology to describe uh, anybody who was pro-Ukrainian. Um, you know, calling them uh, uh, you know uh, uh, You know, their 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 version of, of a sort of like uh, uh, fascist. Um, uh, you know, they were uh, again very skeptical of of journalists, especially foreign correspondents. <clears throat> um, so initially, it it seemed it seemed and felt looked very similar. but it, it wasn't long before shots were being fired and at that point, you know things, things really did change. I had to think more seriously about my personal security, how I would get around. you know I at some point I, I made my way back to Kiev to grab a helmet, a vest, um, you know something uh, that would allow me a little bit more protection um, before I returned you know, the one one thing that, that that helped me in eastern Ukraine was that I knew the region very, very well, as opposed to Crimea, which I had only visited, I think, three times prior to going down there to report on the annexation. Uh, in eastern Ukraine, where, where Russian troops had, had also sent in their, their little green men and were supported by uh, gun-toting locals, uh, you know, I, I knew this area. I had crisscrossed the regions of Donetsk and Lugansk by bicycle, by bus, by train. I had friends there. I knew people who were on both sides of the emerging conflict. And so I had a lot of resources and contacts, and I knew my way around. That really that really helped me. But once things spiraled out of control, that you know, was a, a completely different situation and, and one that I had not found myself in. I never set out to be a war correspondent, a conflict reporter, nothing like that um you know and some some journalists do you know go out into the world and and uh you know head over to the Middle East or head over to you know someplace in Africa or now in eastern europe and and you know they want to be war correspondents i i I did not want to be that person I was much more of a journalist who um, thought of himself as a subject matter expert, that subject being Ukraine and I really enjoyed my my life in in Kiev and 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 being around um, in other places of the country so uh you know I I learned as I went along, um, I spoke with some of the veteran correspondents who had seen what was going on and uh, flew into Kiev and and quickly rushed to where the action was you know and they gave me some very good pointers and and advice to keep me safe and and also to to do my job and uh, ensure that I got some some good reporting and you know I think because of because of them and and I think just, you know, my 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 own good sense and really knowing that part of Ukraine very well, I was able to do what I think was a very good job of covering uh, the early weeks and months of that first Russian invasion in 2014. And there's a lot of that in the book. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of a lot of that reporting and some of the um, uh, things that I was able to uncover, including uh, war crimes committed by some of the Russian... Uh, warlords in in the city of, of Slavyansk, for example, or being one of the first journalists on the scene of the MH17 downing. But it was, it was a completely different situation than Crimea.
0: So talking about the reporting that you did during that time period, one of the stories that really stood out to me was in, I believe, July 2014, you and another reporter found just a trove of documents from a uh, like Russian military officer named Igor Gherkin. Uh, can you talk about what you found and what that would lead to?
1: Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'll give you a little bit of background on Gherkin for anybody who doesn't know him. Um, now he sits in a jail in, um, in, in Russia for speaking out against the Kremlin and its invasion in 2022 for saying that Putin isn't going hard enough on Ukraine. Um, that's how radical he is. So he was this mustachioed um, war reenactor hobbyist who used to work for the FSB and was involved in a lot of Russia's covert invasions um, and and wars prior to 2014. And then he helped Russia with its 2014 annexation of Crimea before he moved over to Eastern Ukraine and became this warlord running. Uh, the city of Slavyansk, and a lot of uh, towns around it in Donetsk Oblast. So he was ruling this area of, of Eastern Ukraine with an iron fist, and um, uh, you know everybody was terrified of him. And we correspondents who wanted to report out there had to go into his office to get um, to sort of apply for a, a press accreditation card so that we wouldn't get harassed on the streets by soldiers. And um, A lot of us went in there once and, and then swore we would, we would not go back, um, myself included, um, because it was so terrifying. And so I sort of just, uh, kept a very low profile and tried to sneak around, uh, the town to do my reporting. And I, and I was pretty successful because I, I knew it very well and I had a lot of contacts, even those on the pro-Russian side who trusted me enough to know that, uh, you know, I was not a threat. I was just doing my job. And, and so I was reporting on the, the, the war and, and the, um, the city and, and it, the terror that was being sown by by Gherkin. And um, and then in July, he actually withdrew his forces. Um, Ukrainian troops were bearing down on the city and uh, looking like they were going to um, storm it. And so Gherkin uh, pulled out his uh, Russian and pro-Russian forces uh, from Slavyansk, retreating back to the regional capital of Donetsk. And the next day, myself uh, or I and um, my my friends Max Seddon and Noah Snyder, the three of us were, were doing a lot of uh, reporting together and moving around together for security reasons. Um, but also we had a lot of sources and contacts between us. And uh, we moved into the city before a lot of the Ukrainian troops had entered it, but after Gherkin had withdrawn his forces. So there was this short window of time where we sort of had the city to ourselves, and people were finally coming out of their homes to see what was going on, and telling us these horrific stories, and a lot of them included um, tales about people disappearing at the building that Gerken was using as his office. So we made our way over to this building, and inside we found it completely torn apart. Uh, it looked like they tried to burn it to the ground to hide evidence of their war crimes, um, there was oil and gasoline and uh, empty alcohol bottles all over the place. And a bunch of documents had been burned. And uh, we found a stack, though, that had not been um, burned. It, it, they, they, they failed to, to detonate. It looked like um, some of them were soaked in, in oil and uh, others were saved because they were wrapped in, in plastic folders. So we started rifling through them. And, um, you know, these are all documents written in Russian. And so uh, we're kind of, you know, meticulously looking through them, but also cautious of the fact that at any moment, you know, police or or local people could come in and maybe usher us us out. And uh, I I, I think it was Noah who first noticed the words, um, you know, military tribunal and um, somewhere down the page, you know, execution by firing squad. And we all just kind of stopped and looked at each other Reread those words and then said, just grab everything. And so we just kind of bundled everything up we could into our jackets and backpacks. And we were filthy because it was all covered in soot and oil. Uh, and we hightailed it out of there. Actually, we came, we came under a, an artillery attack on our way to a hotel, but we eventually made it there. Um, we laid out all these documents, dried them, photographed all of them, and then started meticulously going through them and cataloging them. And what we found was that Girkin, while he was ruling uh, the city of Slavyansk uh, for more than a couple of months, had created this uh, quote-unquote military tribunal that was uh, judging people and uh, arresting people for petty crimes um, stealing clothes breaking into people's homes uh, lifting cars um, but also more serious crimes and then ordering them uh, to be executed by firing squad um, and they were justifying this um, by saying that it was it was necessary to keep order and they were doing it under a uh, world War two era Stalin imposed law and it just seemed so insane and outrageous and 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 so that, uh, that night and over the next couple of days, uh, I and, and Max and, and Noah uh, each wrote our own stories around this and, and published them in our um, respective outlets. And it became a pretty big story and, and the first hard evidence of uh, war crimes committed by uh, Russia's soldiers in eastern Ukraine.
0: I mean, it, it was a really striking story reading it in the book. You went back to Ukraine and I believe November, December of 2021, a couple months before Russia launched its you know, full-scale invasion into the country. Can you talk about your decision to go back and then what it has been like in Ukraine in the nearly two years since this full-scale invasion?
1: Yeah, a lot's changed. And I, I did leave Ukraine, actually, in, in February of 2021, a year before the invasion, thinking that I would I would uh, stay in New York. I'd, I'd done my time in Ukraine. Uh, I was I was trying my hand at a new beat covering um, national security after January sixth, and uh, then Russia began building up its forces around Ukraine. So I, I went back at the end of 2021, and when I arrived back in Kiev, uh, you know I saw a lot of my a lot of my old friends and contacts, um, sources in government, in the military, and you know a lot of people were uh, were really scared. They they did think that something uh something big was about to happen and they were concerned that their president Volodymyr Zelensky was downplaying it a lot of Ukrainians were reading the western the reports of western intelligence saying that Russia was going to launch this large scale military operation and invade the country and so after a few weeks of 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 being in Ukraine my my editors in New York were saying you know do you need to stay do you think it's going to happen and i said yeah i do think it's going to happen and and sure enough uh, come February 24th, 2022. I'm out in eastern Ukraine because I was certain that it would begin uh, where the war was already um, uh, being fought. And I was in a hotel in the city of Krematorsk, just uh, just down the road from Slavyansk, which we were just talking about, um, where Gherkin had been based uh, you know, 10 years, a decade earlier, when uh, the first missiles struck an airfield nearby and shook my hotel and I quickly you know, put my helmet and vest on and, and got to work, um, reporting on you know, what would be the biggest invasion of a European country since World War II. It was shocking. There was uh, a lot of uncertainty, which I think in many ways was the scariest part. Um, obviously, when things are exploding around you, that is terrifying, but nobody knew how long it would last, uh, where these missiles would be fired, where they would explode. You know, I remember my phone ringing constantly um, it was not only family and friends back home in the U.S. checking in on me, but my Ukrainian friends asking me, what do you know? What are you, what, what are you hearing? Where should we go? And, you know, I, I, at that moment, I didn't have a lot of answers. And, you know, what, what, was I, what was I going to tell them? And if I said to go to one place and it ended up being unsafe, you know, I, 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 I don't know if I'd be able to handle that. Um, you know, and, and, and so, unfortunately, in that situation, I said, you know, um, I really don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm trying to figure this out myself. And I'm, I'm also in a bad place and um, was, was under attack. Um, it, was, it was a very different feeling than 2014. You could sense that the scale of, of this attack was significantly greater. There was this feeling that everything would change. Uh, as it has, I think, not only in Ukraine, but across Europe, I think in the United States as well. You know, we are a major player in this. Uh, We're certainly Ukraine's biggest supporter when it comes to military assistance, and they rely heavily on us. You know, two years now into this full-scale invasion, the Ukrainians are running low on troops, on ammunition. In the U.S., there's now a heated debate in Congress uh, about... Whether or not to provide $60 billion of, of assistance. And I think if it doesn't come, they're going to be in a world of trouble here in Ukraine. And I think that could mark a new phase in the war when Ukraine has to learn to survive on its own. I think that is a situation that could get really ugly really quickly. And it's also something that I think the United States will, you know, have to have to live with knowing that they, uh, you know, were largely responsible for for what comes next. Um, I hope we don't get to that point, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful that uh, the U.S. and others will continue to provide support for Ukraine um, because what is happening here now, I think, is a travesty. Um, it's much greater than anything I saw in 2014 or the years after. Um, and and it's it's not over yet. And and Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, has made clear that his goals have not been met, and so there's no reason to stop the war, and so it's going to grind on.
0: So on our chatter podcast, we always ask our guests a question from the chatterbox. And so the question today is could you recommend a book, movie, or TV show other than your very excellent book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Uh, do you have another book, movie, or TV show you could recommend?
1: Yeah, I think I will recommend something that I think will help um, to to better understand Ukraine, a place I love dearly, but more specifically um, the uh, the eastern part of the country, which I think is always um, misunderstood and and sometimes gets a bad rap, um, but is a really fascinating place and and in uh, some unusual ways, very welcoming. Um, so uh, I will recommend a book called Voroshilovgrad. Um, I'll even spell it out because I know it's a it's a tricky one. V O R O S H I L O V G R A D. And uh, Voroshilovgrad is the old name for the city of uh, Lugansk, which is also the uh, uh, one of the regions in eastern Ukraine, Lugansk Oblast. Um, and it's written by a Ukrainian, uh, author, poet, rock star, uh, all around pretty cool guy named Sergei Jadan. Um, it came out well before the full-scale invasion. Um, and, and it's, it's several years old now. Uh, it's, a, it's a novel, not nonfiction, but there's so much truth in it. It's well written, um, translated into English. So you, so, uh, if you don't speak Ukrainian or Russian, you can, you can get a, an English-language copy. And it's, uh, it's one of my favorite books that is um, just very scenic and colorful and packed with uh, complex characters. And I think if you have uh, an interest in learning about uh, this part of, of Ukraine, then it's going to provide some really um, great insights.
0: I'll definitely put that on my list. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for, for chatting. It's been great.
0: That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.